All right, so we are in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, and by way of um, uh, review, in last week's uh, lesson we covered a chapter 4 primarily, and uh, with a, a brief look at chapter 3. And so in chapter 4, where we left off was where God has given us a glimpse of what was to come. And if you look back at Isaiah 4, verse 4, it talks about God is going to wash away the filth. God is going to wash away the filth. And then in verse 5, he's going to go back into creation mode, and he's going to set everything right. He's going to reestablish things the way he intended. And then most of all, we saw that as evidence in, in verse 5 where it says, a cloud by day and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. These are symbols of his presence, of God with us. And then as the God with us phrase echoes with our carols of Emmanuel, who is God with us, we celebrated in verse 2 that, that all of this is going to come about through Jesus, who we can see as the branch of the Lord and the fruit of the earth, the divine and man coming together as the instrument through which God can reestablish things the way they really, really should be. And of course, we're dealing with prophecy language, so sometimes these references are, are somewhat veiled, and you have to see the connections. And we looked at other verses that specifically talk about the branch of the Lord identifying Jesus. So um, as we're still getting our, our sea legs under us, so to speak, as we we learn uh, what it is to, to read prophecy and to, to pull out things, and that's what we're going to do today in chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 um, uh, follows these ebbs and flows, right? I've said there's going to be times when the focus is on uh, how God's going to make it all right, like it was last week, and there's going to be times when it's like God still has work to do to bring uh, judgment um, and to bring... Uh, uh, justice, you know, that there are still problems to confront, there's still warnings to be made, there are still sins to be called out, and, and justice still has to be served, and that's going to be our focus in chapter 5. So there's three main sections. Uh, sections uh, section 1 is verses 1 through 7, where we hear, hear this story, this song, it starts off as about a vineyard. So we're going to look at the vineyard, and, and what that means in verses 1 through 7. And then from verses 8 through 23 are a series of what are called woes. Uh, like, alas, you know, I hate that this is going to happen, but this is a sorry state of affairs, and, and I'm describing this situation, and in a couple of areas I'm going to describe uh, the consequences of this situation. And then verses 24 through 30, you can almost literally hear the hoofbeats coming. This is judgment on its way, and he's going to talk about that as well. So let's jump on into uh, verses 1 through 7. I, we're not going to read the whole verse, but we, I'm going to uh, go through these verses, um, beginning with verse 1. Let me sing now from my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, 
Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So here's a song, you know, and the prophet is wanting to get their attention. He says, you know, let me sing a song. You know, maybe if you haven't heard me so far, let's, let's try singing, right? I'm going to sing a song of my beloved. And with this reference here, uh, you, you get the connotation that, you know, this is maybe an allegory of sorts. You know, we've got, you know, the, the owner of the vineyard, you know, preparing this vineyard and doing things. You know, some people would even see maybe a, uh, a marriage allegory that might be developing, and you almost see Isaiah's kind of drawing people in with the start of this story. You know, it's almost like the old version of Once Upon a Time. You know, gather around, let me sing you a song. Here's a song of my beloved, and he starts it off telling this story. Um, you know, sometimes you can accomplish things with a story that you can't accomplish with just the facts, right? You know, sometimes a portrait can be made to mean a lot more than just a photograph, or sometimes fiction can make a point better than a documentary. I mean, okay, we just had, you know, all the cartoons about Christmas, right? So the Grinch who stole Christmas, what was the point of that? You guys know this story, right? What's the point of the Grinch who stole Christmas? Huh? Oh my gosh. We have someone who's never seen the Grinch who stole Christmas. Okay. For the sake of Jane, Marilyn, oh my word. I didn't realize that this was a, such a culturally disadvantaged group. Uh, the point is, you can't steal Christmas, right? You can gather up all the toys and the roast beast, but you can't steal Christmas, right? That's the point of that. All right, here's an easier one. What is the point of the story of the tortoise and the hare? Slow and steady wins the race, right? Haste makes waste. I mean, that whole fable was a story to make a point. So here we have a story to make a point. Um, all of this work that this owner, this farmer, has gone to prepare all of this, says, you know what? He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced oldless ones. Now he can on here, he's going to drive home the point. Oh, now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So now he's laid out the groundwork. Now he's inviting them into the story and said, you know, what do you make of this? Right? Here is all the work that has been done for my vineyard, and there's only production of bitter grapes. What do you think? What do you think? Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So it was drawing them in. Now, vineyards were a big deal back then, uh, as they still are today. I mean, they say that, you know, of all the things that Israel can grow, 
Grapes are probably some of the things that do the best. And in many areas throughout Scripture, we have you know, this picture of, of the vine. Uh, Jesus used it throughout uh, his teaching about, you know, it was a, a big deal about all, the, all the, the vineyards there. And you could almost see these people say, well, well, that's just horrible. All this work and no grapes. I mean, you could kind of just feel this judgment that they are starting to pronounce. And well, before they can answer, verse 5, it says, well, now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'm removing its hedge, and it's going to be consumed, the protection around it. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. To, it, be, it will become trampled ground, and I will lay it waste. It won't be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I'll charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. And then he brings it home, and he's, he tells them, what the story is about. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. He looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. Looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And in Hebrew, this word justice and bloodshed, they rhyme. And there's a little wordplay here, and he does it again. The word for righteousness and distress, they rhyme. To, to drive home the point. A couple of parallels here. You remember the story of David and Bathsheba. Then the prophet Nathan comes along, and he's going to confront David, right? But how does he do it? He tells him a story. So you know, King, there was this guy... Two men, one city, one was rich, the other one was poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds. This is 2 Samuel 12, if you care to look at it later. The poor man had nothing except one little lamb. He bought it, nourished it. It grew up together with him and his children. It would eat out of, it, out of his hand and drink of his cup and lie to his bosom and was like a daughter to him, this lamb was. Then a traveler came to the rich man. He was unwilling to take from his own flock. In other words, the rich man had to provide for the traveler, had to provide hospitality. So instead of taking a lamb from one of his many flocks, he goes and takes the poor man's lamb and kills it and gives it to the traveler. So Nathan tells David this story and, of course, invites David into that judgment, and David is all over it. He is all over it. He said, his anger burned greatly against the man. As the Lord lives, surely the man who did this deserves to die. And of course, he was pronouncing judgment on himself. That's the same kind of feel we get here. Isaiah's drawing them in, say, come on now. What do you think about this situation? Judge now. What do you think? They would probably have no problem at all Jesus, I mean, uh, Isaiah through, and God say, you know, I'm going to curse this vineyard for its bitter grapes. And they were probably all right there with him. Whoever was hearing Isaiah would say, oh yeah, deserves to be cursed. And then he tells them, oh yeah, here's who I'm talking about. So here we have this chapter where he sets them up and says, Here's the situation. Here's what's happened. 
And now he's going to get specific. Beginning in verse 8. I think I'll probably skip a, a couple things here. Verses 8 through 10 talk about a guy that's building farms next to farms and houses next to houses, just expanding his wealth greatly. And the woe there is about greed. And in verse 11, that goes all the way down to verse 17, it says, Woe to those who rise up early in the morning that may pursue strong drink, and late in the evening that wine may inflame them, and the banquets and the singing and the tambourines. Latter part of verse 12, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Therefore, verse 13, my people go into exile for the lack of knowledge. Honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched. So now we get some of the consequences of that sin and the, the problem in 11 and 12 is mainly self-indulgence is the sin. If you go down to verse 18, it says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin is with cart ropes. Uh, I, I got to tell you just in all honesty, verses 18 and 19, uh, the commentators say this talks about cynicism or, or carelessness Basically saying, okay, God, go do your thing, see if we care. It's just a, a real cynical attitude about God. Um, I'll have to trust the commentators on this. I had a hard time really connecting with those verses. Verses 20 and following. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It will come to pass in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand... Oh, turned too many pages here. I knew that didn't sound right. There we go. People who substitute... There's verse 20. Substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21. To those who are wise in their own eyes. So this has to do with uh, just things being backwards with morality. Uh, black is white and white is black and everything's gone crazy. Uh, and people are just doing what they think is okay on their own standard. God's standards are gone. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Verse 23 kind of hints at the tone of the whole thing. Um, it's kind of social injustice. You know, this is, you know, trampling on the rights of those who maybe can't defend themselves. And, and just the strong is winning. People who are excelling in little things and failing in the big things. Things are crazy as he outlines things. Verse 24. Now we get the, the therefore. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, 
Their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord is burned against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. Look at verse 26. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone. Nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp. All the bows are bent. The hoofs of the horses seem like flint and the chariot wheels like a whirlwind. He's describing the army that is coming. This army has its stuff together. Nobody's tired. Everybody's fresh. The arrows are sharp. The bows are bent. The horses are fast. The chariots are tuned up and ready to go. And like I said, you can almost hear it coming. To me, this sounds... There's a tone of imminence, like, y'all, I can, I can see this, seems to me that it, it just feels that it's not that far away. It shall growl over it in the, that day, verse 30, like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, there's darkness and distress, even the light is darkened by its clouds. We've talked about the weather, all right? Sometimes, you know, you can have that clear day, but in the horizon, typically for us from the west, you can almost see the front coming, right? You can look across the horizon, see the clouds building. And you know, the weather, we've seen it on the radar now, but here with our own eyes, the clouds are building, the storm is coming, it's getting close. And that's the image here. It's getting close. So, what do we make of this? What do we make of this passage, right? Let's look at just a couple things. Back to the vineyard. I think that, um, that there's a principle here. And so many times... God truly sets us up for success. Look at all the things that God did for that vineyard. He did everything that could be done. So much so that he even asks everybody, what I miss? What did I miss? Is there anything else I could have done? And I think so often God sets us up for success. He is a good daddy. He wants to see us succeed. He wants us to bring good grapes, right? But it didn't happen. I think there may be a little bit of a message, if this isn't stretching it too far, but um, I think there's a little word for parents here who maybe have tried to do everything they could to launch their children in a favorable direction. But at some point, those children are going to have to just kind of make their own decision at some point, right? And at some point, I think the, the parent could say, you know, I'm not sure what else I could have done. You know, obviously you want to pray for these folks, and, but I think 
you know, I, in, in my office, I see a fair amount of guilt. You know, maybe I should have done this, maybe I should have done that. Um, I, I think, you know, God in some, you know, he asked us to refer to him as Father, and I think, you know, he's kind of said, you know, I've, look, I've done, I've set you guys up. I did everything there, and it didn't work out. Um, another point on those woes. The writer gives very specific examples of what the problem is. But the problem isn't so much the specific. The problem is always a heart thing, right? It's always a heart thing. Like in the first part, in verses 8 and 9, is it a problem to build a subdivision? <laughs> Not necessarily. Is it a problem to become more wealthy? No. We see back in, in Genesis where, you know, people who build bigger flocks, that was, that was a good thing. Jacob was praised for his animal husbandry efforts in building up the flocks of his father-in-law. So it's not a bad thing to be prosperous, but it is a bad thing to be greedy. So there we have the heart issue, right? If you look at um, verse 11, you know, it talks about getting up early and drinking strong drink and staying up late to drink more wine and the banquets and so forth. The problem isn't, you know, the drinking or the partying, right? I mean, God planted the vineyard, and it wasn't just so they could have grapes for a couple weeks. You know, he's expecting them to make wine. There's a wine press in this vineyard. So the problem isn't the drinking. The problem is, it's just all the self-indulgence. It's just, Selfishness. You know, and I think one of the things I took from this is it's so easy for us to focus on the behaviors of people, but then we miss the heart issues, right? And if you try to correct somebody's behavior from the outside, you will not win that. You can only fix it with a heart thing, right? I think every parent of a five-year-old knows that. Right? Because otherwise, they just behave when they're not being watched. You get their heart, then, then you got something. So, as we go through these woes, think about the, the heart issues that are there. All right, so you remember our, our challenges that we were going to try to do? This is a personal challenge for me as we went through each passage. I was going to say, what does this passage tell us about man? All right? All right, so audience participation. What does this passage tell us about man? We are arrogant. We are going to want to do our own thing. That is so right, Pat. That is so right. What else? We are greeting. Go on. Ungrateful. Selfish. It's a good thing we don't have any of those things today. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 
I mean, we learned that we are still, you know, in my first one, I wrote selfish. Whoever said selfish, you know? God blesses us so much, and we just keep it to ourselves, right? I was doing some thinking about this. In our conversations with the, the kids being home, we were talking about the trend nowadays for, um, you know, you buy a certain product from a company, and they say, well, you know, we're, we want to be, um, we want to give back a part of this to some worthy cause, right? You guys have seen this. You know, you purchase from us, we're going to, uh, you know, help the endangered wildlife, or we're going to, you know, help the rescue animals, or we're going to do something good with this extra money. And I, I thought to myself, well, what is the motivation for that. So you could be cynical and say, well, it's marketing, of course. <laughs> this is America. Uh, that, that helps your marketing. Uh, because truly, they, they wouldn't have to tell us that, right? They could do it quietly on their own, out of their own pocket. But of course, you want to include it on your website because it's a little bit of marketing. It's okay. But what's really the motivation? You know, is it, is it just because it's going to make the world a better place. It's going to make me feel less guilty. It's going to be market. I don't know. I think some of this may come from a very good place for these folks. But what's, what's our deal? When we're blessed and we're not as generous as we should be. I think that's, you know, like you said, man is selfish. What else about man? And we haven't really gotten very far. Right? <laughs> you know, truly, through God's grace, man is still man, right? We're all dirty, rotten sinners, and even Christians need a Savior. Um, we, we truly, without the external influence of the Holy Spirit, we are no different than these folks were almost 3,000 years ago. I mean, truly. We're, um, without Christ, certainly hope is lost. I think this is interesting. Um, by way of example that we haven't really changed, we tend to major in the minors. We make a big deal about things that really don't matter very much. Back in this day, you have guys that are going to show off their manliness. Do you see this? By how good a bartender they are. That's their, that's their, that's their valor. You guys won't believe the greatest cocktail I could make. This is so awesome. What a great guy I am. Right? I really, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, people who think the Bible is boring. I mean, look at verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing their cocktails. A little paraphrase there. We get so excited about the things that really don't matter very much and, and God has big things for us to do and I think there's something really powerful still about the person that can elevate our sights right I think in some ways we've lost the the value of the person that can inspire us to greater things right is it just about making things a little bit better for our kids than we had it? What about people that can inspire us to do great things? You know, we, we hear, you know, back in the great mission movements, you had, 
and the great revival movements. I mean, these are people who were calling people to sacrifice, calling people to do amazing things. When I was um, in college, uh, we went to this big campus campus crusade thing. 20,000 students there. And the whole thing was to take a group of people from across the country and to inspire them to do something better with their lives than they otherwise would have done. I don't really know necessarily who the prophets are, are in our day. But we still need people like that to inspire us to do greater things. And I don't think that has an age cut off. I think each of us, here we are, we're on the threshold of the New Year's resolution, right? This is where we all do that little inventory and say, you know, I gotta do, I gotta do something different, right? And really, I think we ought to set our sights a little higher than just stop smoking and lose weight. I mean, those are the top two I see in my office. Is that all I can inspire my folks to do? Is that it? Exactly. Exactly. So maybe that's something that's, you know, maybe that's something that's equivalent to being a good bartender. You know, is that, is that all our life is going to be about next year? So let's set our sights a little higher, maybe. All right, so the second thing was... First of all, what can we learn about man from this passage? And then the second thing was, what can we learn about God from this passage? So, what do we learn about God from this passage? He is so patient, right? (laughs) But to a point, right? Obviously, he's given a pretty free hand to, for us to mess it up. Exactly. What else? Exactly. You can't say he's not coupling patience with the warning, right? Y'all, fair warning. Here's what Eisen. Provides everything we need as long as we don't mess it up. I can't even elaborate on that very much, Pat. Thank you. What else? In spite of us, he's there for us. In spite of us, he's there for us. You know, this particular age, like pretty much all others, There's craziness in the world, and we wonder how everything is going to play out. But here we have a clear evidence that God is in charge of world events. He's just described this powerful, powerful army, right? Look at verse 26. You see what he has to do to make this most powerful army in the world at that time to do what he wants? Come here. That's it. 
I'm going to lift up a standard. I'm going to plant a flag to the distant nation. He says, I'm planting my flag so they'll know where to come. Come get on. That's all he had to do was whistle. How cool is that? I'd never seen that before. I thought that was amazing. You know, so if we worry about how this is all going to turn out, you know, just remember who can whistle and things happen. All right. Last one. The other thing I, I, uh, I think this makes very clear, this passage. God has a claim on us. All right? He has a claim on us. He has ownership rights on us. These, this is his people. This is his vineyard. These are his preparations that he's made for success. He has expectations for them that are rightfully his. He has claims on us. The biggest problem with all those people in the woes section was that they didn't say, whoa, God's got a claim on me. I don't really just get to do what I want. I have someone else to answer to. God has a claim on us and their biggest problem was, like it said in verse 21, they thought they were wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. They looked in the mirror and they were liking it because they didn't see the heart. They didn't see God has a claim on me. We don't really get to do just what we want, right? And I think even today, that's the mark of a Christian is that part of following our Savior is to say, you know, I'm going to not do some things that I would want to do because I want to do the things that you want me to do. You couple that kind of servanthood, that kind of submission with a God who says, I will make you successful in their purpose. Now you've got the real elements for making a difference. In whatever mission field God's laid out for us, that can't still make a difference like that. That's all I got.